We are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, But even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans in the South. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. What we've seen is a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Well, dignity of humanity. The United States used to be known for caring about the dignity of people. What do you know about Yemen? Most of us Americans have only a vague idea of where it is. Some of us may have heard that just a few days after Trump assumed the presidency, an American service person was killed and three others were wounded in a firefight with militants in Yemen. Trump said it was part of a, quote, fight against the evil of radical Islamic terrorism, unquote. Of course, it is far more complex than that. The Saudi government is heavily invested militarily in Yemen right now, which is their neighbor uh, just to the north. Yemen is the south of Saudi Arabia. And the Iranians are supporting the other side, maybe. Meanwhile, the people of Yemen are experiencing humanitarian disaster. The Trump action appears to be a new escalation against groups in the Arab world's poorest but strategically located country. Our guest today is currently in Yemen, Sarah Tesoreri. Uh, Did I get that right? Yes, that's good. Oh, good. Sarah Tesoreri is a, thank you for so much for being with us, serves as a roving advocacy and policy advisor for the Norwegian Refugee Council, the NRC, the good NRC, uh, responds to emergency needs in Yemen, working with communities to support them to regain self-reliance and preserve their dignity. Uh, The NRC works in areas of food security Imagine that. Food security, water, sanitation, hygiene, shelter, and education. The NRC assumes, ensures that their programs avoid causing additional harm to the communities that they help, along with prioritizing their safety and making themselves accountable to the people in need. Sarah Tesoreri is an advocacy and policy advisor with the Norwegian Refugee Council, currently based in Yemen, which is where we are reaching her. Uh, before joining this group, Sarah served as EU Migration Policy Advisor for Oxfam International, another great group. Sarah has worked in humanitarian response operations uh, in Iraq, Nigeria, South Sudan. She was previously Brussels Director for Crisis Action and Assistant Director for Transatlantic Relations at the Atlantic Council of the United States. After uh, she uh, returned uh, after he returned from his fact-finding trip there, the head of the organization, John Jan, I should say, Egeland, Secretary General of the Council, warned that Yemen faces a biblical famine if the U.S. and other powers don't stop supporting 
the violence that is everywhere in that country. Uh, it's destroying Yemen. The poverty, of course, is not easy to address, but the impending famine in Yemen is totally preventable, he says. He warns that millions of lives are at risk because of war, because of food shortages and limited medical care. Uh, again, Sarah, thanks so much for being with us. The people of Yemen are quite poor. Two-thirds of the total Yemeni population, or 18.8 million people, are in need of humanitarian assistance. Your organization found that a famine is wholly man-made and is totally preventable. I wonder if you could say more about what you find there with regard to the threat of real serious famine. Right. So uh, we're not quite at full-blown famine yet. But we're very close, uh, and and that is where it is key that that message that Jan was passing that this is man-made, uh, and therefore preventable. So, to to understand this a bit, Yemen is a country that imports almost all of its essential food, uh, goods, including food. It imports ninety percent of its food, and that that's always been the case. That was before the conflict. Um, so it's very easy to cut off, uh, you know, the supplies of food that come into the country. And so we've had a lot of disruption um, to to that supply uh, due to the conflict um, because, of course, of the instability in the country uh, produced by the conflict, but also um, deliberate actions to stop ships from arriving at ports uh, carrying anything, uh, including food. So it, it's it's really a situation... Um, I, where, as I heard one donor at the at the recent donor conference in Geneva put it, uh, the people of Yemen aren't starving; they're being starved, no. uh, and that's our situation. And you know, you mentioned how many people are in need—19 million. So, 17 million of those uh, are considered to be food insecure, as we say. So, they need some kind of assistance with food. Seven million of them are on the brink of famine. So, they're you know anything that that disrupts their ability to get food, they run out of savings because a lot of people are, are at this point, you know, they're using whatever resources they have left to, to buy food that's getting more and more expensive. Um, the, the, the supply of food to their area, you know, is cut for whatever reason or the entire supply to the country is, is, further, um, is further cut and they will tip over into famine. The other thing um, that for me is, is really striking about that uh, and, and upsetting is that um, you know we say we say the country is not at famine yet, and we can prevent that, and that's true. We are seeing that where uh, aid agencies are interve- intervening with food assistance, people who would be brink of famine are just not quite getting enough food, <laughs> which you know in this scenario is is sort of a victory. But um, part of the reason we say brink and and. It's it's very likely that there are some people who uh, are at, at famine level, who are um, dying of hunger. We don't know. We can't say for sure, and we don't know, because the systems in Yemen are so degraded by the conflict. The, the, the country is experiencing such a complete collapse of services that uh, medical services uh, are included in that. They've been very hard hit. Only 45% of medical facilities uh, function uh, barely, and that means we don't have mortality data. We literally can't count the bodies in Yemen. So if there are people dying of hunger, we don't know because uh, we don't we don't have the data and we're not able to collect it. Um, so uh, we may have some famine already. Hard to say. What we know for sure is 
uh, if there's, uh, you know, any further interference in the food supply chain, um, if, you know, if, if, if everything doesn't go as well as it can under the circumstances, it would take, unfortunately, very little to tip, uh, you know, about those 7 million people over into to full-blown famine. Oh, my goodness. It's, it's just so hard to imagine, but uh, it, it's a good thing you guys are there. What about the Saudis? They're there, too. They have a tremendous amount of money. I mean, just, just more money than they can imagine. What, what is their role in all this, the Saudi government in particular? The Saudi government is is leading a coalition um, that is uh, supporting um, the Yemeni government uh, that is the the recognized uh, internationally recognized government of Yemen. And so, uh, as I understand it from an aid worker perspective, the, the rationale is is they are, uh, you know, engaged in this conflict on the side of of that faction, um, and and then we have uh, another faction who are in control of uh, a number of governorates, particularly here in the north, including Sanaa, where I am. And so, um, as you described it, I think at the beginning, uh, you know, this is essentially a an internal conflict in which you have a lot of external actors involved. The Saudis have also uh, given, uh, you know, a certain amount of humanitarian assistance as well, uh, which is, of course, we, you know, the, the, the Yemeni people need all the help they can get, but right. um, they wouldn't need that help if we didn't have a conflict to start with. Um, and if you look at the amount of money, you know, that, I mean, wars are very expensive. Um, it take, it costs about $42,000 an uh, to fly a fighter jet for about an hour. Um, and I can tell you, you know, sitting mm. here, because I get woken up regularly, they're flying a lot. <laughs> um, and, uh, and and that's also supported by the United States. The United States is spending a lot of money in refueling um, and, and other support. Uh, meanwhile, we need um, $2 billion uh, for this year to reach just $12 million of the worst off out of the $19 million. so really the people most desperate. And, you know, we're in May, we're five months into the year, and we have less than 20% of that money. And I don't mean NRC, I mean, I mean the entire humanitarian response. So, I mean, you know, not only are these, all of these countries, um, you know, continuing this, this conflict that's just destroying the lives of 28 million people, um, but they're spending huge amounts of money to do it, and, and we're basically out there begging uh, to get enough money to try to stave off famine. Yeah, so uh, so it's, it's, it's really a, um, an unbalanced picture in that regard. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is uh, Sarah Tess- Tessorieri. I hope I got that right. With the Norwegian Refugee Council, we're speaking to her in Yemen. And we're talking about the situation in Yemen. Uh, you know, the civil war in Yemen, as I understand it, has been going on for about two years. And the assaults go on. There's talk, reports of an imminent assault on the key port city by the Saudi-led coalition forces that have been leading these airstrikes. How do you navigate Yemen's immense need needs, I should say, without having the support of the warring parties there? Or do you have the support? I and mean, you know, there, there are at least two sides in this uh, civil war. Uh, what do you hear about the possibility of uh, an imminent, imminent assault 
on the uh, key port city, which, you know, as you said, virtually everything comes into Yemen from uh, outside of Yemen. We are certainly not privy to anyone's military plans, uh, so it's it's really hard to say. Uh, you know, I would imagine you've heard what I've heard, uh, because we certainly follow it closely, um, <laughs> you know, that uh, that there there is such planning, um, that there are active discussions uh, within the coalition and with the countries that support the coalition, including the United States, um, about uh, about you know moving into Hodeidah. I mean, uh, a few things. So so you know that's certainly in the cards. Whether or not it goes ahead, I I, I wouldn't be able to tell you. That's not the kind of information right. I'm privy to. But right. what we are trying to be very clear about is a few things. One. We've got fighting already on that coast. So Hodeida is sort of on the west coast, basically, of Yemen. And there's fighting that's already moving up uh, from the south, so from Taiz, which is the governorate south of Hodeida Governorate, where Hodeida Port is. Uh, fighting's already moving up, and Taiz uh, is is a really difficult place for us to move in in order to deliver assistance because of the active fighting. Um, and Hodeida mm-hmm. Governorate is already one of the worst hit uh, places in Yemen in terms of the impact of this conflict. So even though that's where food comes in, let's say that the, the area itself has just completely appalling uh, levels of malnutrition. Mm. Um, it's one of the most food insecure places. So they're already really suffering. And so even if, you know, regardless of sort of the port, even if fighting continues to move into this area, that's really uh, um, a cause for concern. Hodeida City is, is one of the more densely populated places in Yemen. Mm-hmm. So um, that's, I think, uh, almost half a million people there, maybe 400,000 people, really in a really congested small area. And the port is directly adjacent to that city. So, you know, I'm no, I'm no military expert for right, sure, right. Uh, but it's, you look at the map and it's really hard to see how they would go after the port as, let's say, a, you know, a strategic asset uh, without impacting this, this very congested city that's right around the port. Um, now, uh, the port, it's so, so, you know, one thing is a lot of people are sort of talking about the port, but we really need to remember there's a lot of people around that port who will be deeply affected by this very, very directly. Then there's the knock-on, potential knock-on effects of, of an attack on Hodeida, which, uh, as you were mentioning, you know, for us as humanitarians, uh, you know, it's not our concern who has control of a specific port and mm-hmm. who manages it or doesn't manage it. What we're concerned about is does the food come in or not? Mm-hmm. And, you know, kind of as I was saying about the famine, we're really on a razor's edge here. We mm-hmm. already have a situation where uh, in the first months of this year, there's been some, some breaks in the food supply chain, yeah? And that has very, very direct effects on the ground um, where, you know, food doesn't get distributed. And because food doesn't get distributed, tensions rise, you know, people get sure. desperate. If you have oh, no yeah. food to feed your kids, you know, right. what, are you, what are you willing to do and how angry are you going to be right. uh, and what are the consequences? So then it makes it really difficult to continue any kind of distribution even if you get food later because uh, the security situation can be so bad because maybe you don't have have so much food to distribute, and so you you can only give certain you know a few people food when everyone is desperate. You you can see how bad that gets. So 
we're on a razor's edge. We get any more disruption to this, this supply chain. We get anything that uh, has a chilling effect on the number of ships willing to come to Hodeida, you know, so it can, it can be short of an attack. We get anything, and, and, and we really uh, we have huge risk. We will see a very direct impact. So uh, we are deeply concerned about, uh, about the fate of that port um, and what could happen there. And I sincerely hope that... Um, cooler and more humane heads will prevail uh, and that this this will be avoided. Um, and, you know, we're kind of hearing a narrative that it's either attack the port or come up with a deal to transfer uh, the management of the port. Well, you know, there's, a, there's another better option, which is stop fighting, declare a ceasefire, uh, stop worrying about who controls the data port, and, and go to the negotiating table over that, over that and, and everything else. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's very much a concern, and, uh, and let's hope it doesn't come to that. Yeah, and, and certainly for the, for the U.S., you know, I, I don't think it's about, you know, uh, trying to win the hearts and minds of the Yemeni people. It's the location. And I think I can't help but think it has something to do with oil distribution in the world. And, you know, we get we don't here in the U.S. get a very uh, clear picture. We just, you know, it's painted for us and we have so many things going on. I mean, the absolute madness that's going on in Washington uh, these days. So we don't really get a full picture of it. And in the U.S., thinking back a bit to the war in Vietnam, that was painted as a proxy fight between the Russians and the communists on one side and the U.S. and democracy on the other. Of course, it wasn't like that at all. Uh, of course, it was a struggle for national self-determination after the ouster of the French colonialists in the early 1950s. Now, Yemen is being pictured as a proxy war between the Saudis and the Iranians. What is the reality there? There's, is there not actually a deeper, more genuinely national struggle going on? You know, I don't, uh, I'm not Yemeni, I'm not an expert on Yemen, Yemen history or politics, so I, you know, I want to be a bit cautious about uh, making any claims, uh, you know, in that regard. Um, you know, certainly there, there, you know, Yemen has, has had unrest before. Um, you know, this is, this is a country uh, that's had uh, challenges in the past, and, um, you know, uh, I mean, disagreements is perhaps not the strong enough word, uh, but, but certainly that has, um, you know, faced, faced this kind of situation before, not certainly as dire as it is in terms of the impact on civilians uh, that we see currently. Um, so, you know, there are definitely uh, political grievances, um, you know, within the country, and, and the origins of the conflict stems from those political grievances. Um, and, you know, that's why we, we call for a peace process, because, you know, that's the way to resolve, you know, talks and negotiation are the way um, to, to address such political grievances, not fighting. Um, in terms of, you know, is it a proxy? I mean, that's, that's for the countries uh, who are getting engaged in this conflict <laughs> from outside, I suppose, to, to answer. Um, what, I, you know, for me, the concern is uh, it's really hard to see what possible objective anyone is achieving in this current situation because 
essentially the country is being destroyed. The economy is collapsing. Public services have been devastated. I mean, all of that will take so much to rebuild. Um, and, you know, and people people are paying the price. That you know, We've got 28, country 28 million. We've got at least 19 million who are paying the price for this uh, in terms of, you know, losing their futures and, and even their lives. So um, whatever objective any side of this, any party in this conflict may have, I really struggle to see how they can believe that in this current situation they are achieving that objective. I mean, frankly, if, if you're struggling over control of the country and the country is destroyed completely in no. the process, uh, it's not clear to me what you've achieved. So, um, you know, I think, uh, you know, I may be naive. I'm, I'm clearly not a geopolitical strategist. I'm an aid worker. Uh, but, um, you know, I'm, I'm here on the ground. I see how badly, uh, how badly things are going, and I just don't see who is winning here. Um, and I see just a lot of people losing. Mm, mm, mm. So I, I wonder about disease, too. You know, disease often accompanies uh, wars of attrition. It seems like they're doing that. And, you know, it's often the case in many wars that one side tries to starve the other side through blockades. Yeah. So aside from the, the famine, I can't help but think that there's a lot of deadly disease uh, going on as well. What are you finding as an aid worker there? You know, absolutely. Uh, I don't know if you've you've seen the the some of the latest news just coming out in the past few days. Uh, we have a new uh, cholera outbreak uh, that is it's frankly it's terrifying because um, we've I think we've seen uh, something like the reporting is about two thousand suspected new cases in two weeks. Um, it's it's hard. It's hard to know. When we say suspected cases, it's basically what that means is anyone who shows up with those symptoms, you know, it's suspected cholera. It's difficult to confirm because, one, lack of imports of medicine and medical supplies means there's a shortage of testing kits and the, sh- and, uh, the devastation of all of the systems in the country, including the health system, means there aren't enough facilities uh, to do the testing. But, um, you know, there's been cholera in the country before. There was a cholera outbreak uh, over the winter. This time, we're all a lot, I mean, people are really uh, fearful of of how fast this might um, spin into an epidemic um, because there's, there's a few factors. So, uh, one, as I mentioned, the degradation of the health facilities. I mean, it's just been, uh, you know, devastated, uh, and uh, it's clear that the authorities don't have the kind of capacity that they had even a few months ago um, to address this. Uh, it's also now where it's getting warmer in summer. It also rains more here in the summer, uh, and so, of course, with, uh, you know, uh, uh, communicable diseases like cholera, uh, moves through dirty oh, wow. water, basically, that's that's a real um, risk factor. And then, again, because of the collapse of all the systems here, um, public employees haven't been paid in about eight months. So there's 1.2 million, I think, civil servants who haven't gotten a paycheck. And it kind of went in, in waves, but um, the most some of the most recent to stop being paid are the sanitation workers. So basically, the public sanitation sector has collapsed. They're not collecting garbage. So here in Sanaa, mm. go. I went. I was in Old City Sanaa just a few days ago. It's it's beautiful. It's a, you know it's a UNESCO World Heritage Site. It started to rain, and there were just it's when it rains, there's just rivers of water down the street, and now it's rivers of garbage laden water. And I could see for myself, mm. you know, um, that's just a recipe for disaster. And cholera is a terrible, cruel disease. 
Um, you know, you can die within hours if you're already weak, which you will be if you aren't eating enough. Uh, and uh, it, it, it spreads so fast. And then there's a risk of, of other diseases coming along with that. So dengue fever, which has, uh, there's been outbreaks of that before. Um, so it's a huge concern how fast this is moving, you know, and it's just one more thing that uh, that the people who are suffering here so much, you know, don't need this this just vicious disease uh, moving so fast through the country on top of everything else. And it's, again, something that's preventable, you know. That is preventable. Cholera is totally preventable. You need the health systems. You need the public sanitation to be working, you know. You need the health systems working. Uh, and, and then you just don't need this. And so um, all it would take would be, uh, you know, again, ceasefire, peace agreement and to make sure that public uh, salaries are, are paid again and that people can go back to work and, and make sure that uh, these kind of diseases don't spread. It is preventable, and I, I admire your courage for being there. My goodness, I don't know how many uh, aid workers there are there, but it must be a little bit worrisome from time to time, not only the, the war itself, but various diseases coming out there. What can the people of the U.S. do? And we're, we're speaking with uh, uh, Sarah Tezuriari, uh, who is with the Norwegian Refugee Council in Yemen itself. What can people do? Is our government helping at all? Uh, and, and, you know, what, what would you suggest that listeners might do to put pressure on, on the U.S. To, uh, to do something here? Maybe put pressure on the Saudis? Or, or what, what would you do? Yeah, um, I think there's definitely uh, a lot that can be done um, because the you know the U.S. the U.S. is a powerful country. Um, they are uh, the U.S. is directly, uh, well, or I guess indirectly, but certainly engaged uh, in this situation. Uh, and so um, you know, it would be it would be good to see a change in the U.S. stance and a change in U.S. policy. I think um, that. Uh, you know, people can can obviously approach their representatives, can express their views. Um, I think that you know, there's there's a few arguments to make here and a few things to to demand uh, accountability on. Uh, you know, one one is again ensuring that the, the the minimum thing here is ensuring that the lifeline of aid continues, and that is about funding. And it's about ensuring access, and it's about ensuring that you don't destroy the supply chains into the country. And and one thing on that, it it, it is about aid. But just to be clear, as you you know, as you can uh, sort of see the logic of when you consider that nine, you know, the ninety percent of the food is imported, most of that is commercial, by the way. So so aid accounts for something like three percent, and that's that's oh. because we don't you know generally import directly. We try to you know small NGOs like small relatively the. the compared to the UN. Uh, NGOs like NRC, you know, we, we purchase locally also to, to kind of keep the money here uh, sure. for the economy. Um, and so we're, we're purchasing what we give as aid. We're purchasing it here from, from the people importing commercially. Um, the UN imports a certain amount directly, but most of this is coming in commercially. So we need all of that to continue or we can't deliver the aid, let alone having food for the people who still have the means to buy it um, so that they don't eat aid. Um, so, you know, v- 
very minimum, you know, we, we can't have an attack on Hudeda port or any other right. uh, strategic point in the in the supply chains. Um, ideally, we need more space open, actually, for, for goods to come in. Uh, airspace is currently closed. No mm. one can land in Sana'a Airport except the UN. Uh, so, you know, uh, that also means, by the way, that uh, people who need medical attention, they can't get in Yemen, aren't able to fly out to get it somewhere else. So that's just sort of another, frankly, rather cruel uh, cruel thing that, that, that is happening here. So, you know, demand that, 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 that the U.S. ensure that, um, you know, that, that aid can continue, that people can at least get, uh, you know, their basic needs met and that we don't end up with, right. with a wholesale famine. Um, and then, you know, the other, the other thing it would be good to see U.S. support for, it would be, it would be good to see the U.S. shift their support from, um, from, Pursuing, you know, supporting the pursuit of a military solution, uh, military end uh, to this conflict, to supporting uh, a ceasefire and, and, and peace talks, um, because you know that's where we would like to see uh, that capacity, that leverage, um, that power uh, exerted, um, because that's that's what people need here. Uh, they need peace. <laughs> uh, they need peace, and, and they need it more than they need aid at a certain point because, uh, you know, the aid only goes so far, um, and we're not going to be able to uh, have enough aid to sustain a country of 28 million people uh, if we go any further down down this, this road of, of collapse of uh, mm. everything in the country, the economy, the services, uh, everything else. And we're talking about a potential famine of biblical proportions here, and I just, I cannot... You know, winning. What does winning mean? You know, if, if, you know, say all these people die of starvation, what is the point? What is gained by that? It's just incredible to me, and it's incredible the work you do. Thank you with the Norwegian Refugee Council. What other groups? I imagine Oxfam is helping, perhaps. I don't know. Who? Any other uh, NGOs helping there in Yemen? Oh, sure. Uh, you know, the, the UN agencies are here, so WFP and UNICEF and many others. Lots of NGOs here. You mentioned Oxfam. There's, uh, Save the Children. There's, um, IRC. There's ACS, yeah. which is, uh, Action Contre la Femme. Uh, so, yeah, lots of, lots of NGOs here. I think any of your, your listeners, uh, who, you know, help want, want to give some support, uh, if they check their favorite, their favorite international charity, uh, to see whether they work in Yemen, will, will undoubtedly find a good organization they can support if they want to do that. Well, thank you very much and, uh, best of luck. Uh, it's very important, uh, work that you're doing there, Sarah Tesorari. Uh, thank you so much for being with us, uh, and, uh, good luck in Yemen. I hope you certainly stay healthy. Thanks so much for being with us and keeping democracy alive. And thanks for your work. Thank you so much. And, uh, you know, please, please keep engaged on him and please keep an eye on it. We need all the attention we can get and, and all the pressure that can be generated to uh, get everyone to move to a solution on this conflict. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you for listening. We'll be back after uh, this little number, but death doesn't have any mercy. Stay with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Death don't 
have no mercy in this land When our death don't have no mercy in this land What in this land come here housing won't stay long Look around the room, one of your family will be gone I said death don't have no mercy in this land Everyone knows the Middle East is a very troublesome place. Conventional wisdom is that there are good guys and bad guys. The line of demarcation between the two is pretty clear. For example, the U.S. has a long and solid connection with Saudi Arabia. Most people have a vague impression that the Saudis are among the more moderate forces in that turbulent region. But as the song said, it ain't necessarily so. No question the Saudis are a major power in the region, largely because of their oil uh, and their military. But it is, is it still in our interest to keep such close ties with the Saudis? Could it be that the Saudis are among the biggest troublemakers and the most brutal regimes in the area despite a longstanding friendship? Could our conventional wisdom be wrong? Well, I'm very pleased and honored, I must say, to have as our guest for this segment, Medea Benjamin. Thank you so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Live. Thanks so much for having me on. Cited by the L.A. Times as one of the high-profile members of the peace movement, the co-founder of Code Pink has become famous for fearlessly tackling head-on subjects most of us would rather avoid. Sometimes she does so in person, as during President Obama's speech at the National Defense University, or during a reception for the drone manufacturers and members of Congress, or in Cairo, where she was assaulted by police. Uh, Our guest, uh, Medea Benjamin, is currently on a book tour promoting Kingdom of the Unjust behind the U.S.-Saudi connections about the nature of the relationship between us and Saudi Arabia. It's got seven chapters, followed by a look at prospects for change. With extremism spreading across the globe, a reduced U.S. need for uh, Saudi oil, and a thawing of U.S. relations with Iran, the question she looks at is, what should American policy be toward Saudi Arabia? Uh, Again, Medea Benjamin, thank you for being with us. What was your purpose in writing this book? Why did it need to be written? I realized as somebody who is part of the activist movement trying to stop wars and looking at the uh, spread of violence throughout the Middle East, that one of the key issues in the unraveling of all of this conflict is to recognize how toxic the U.S.-Saudi relationship has been, how um, bad the Saudis have been in, in promoting and spreading extremism, and the need to separate U.S. policy from this uh, giving diplomatic cover and support and weapons to the Saudis. Yeah, we have not uh, really looked at that uh, so far. The Saudis, along with Israel, have been the U.S.'s most reliable allies in the Middle East for a really long time. I think most Americans see them as a force for moderation. I think that's the impression that most people have. Is that your read, too, that most people see them as a force for moderation? And is this not accurate? Well, neither country is a force for moderation, and both countries have led us into uh, tremendous boondoggles in the Middle East. 
certainly our support for Israel to the tune of over $3 billion a month, uh, a year, uh, for military, quote, aid, uh, has enabled the Israelis to continue to oppress the Palestinians. And certainly the U.S. support for um, the Saudis has enabled the Saudis not only to spread extremism around the world, uh, to be presently con- uh, involved in war crimes in Yemen, but also to keep their own citizenry oppressed and to prop up this uh, dictatorship uh, that can't last for too long, and who knows what will come out of that if we don't support the reform elements within Saudi Arabia. So um, there is certainly a mistaken notion about Israel and Saudi Arabia. So how is it that, and again, is it your read, like it is mine, that most people you know, don't pay a lot of attention to this area, quite frankly. Most people do have the impression that the Saudis are a, a force for moderation. I, you know, I, I'm not sure where that comes from. What's your sense of that? Is, and is that the impression that you've had as you travel around, that people think that? Well, I'm certainly talking to a lot of self-selected people. Oh, true. Uh, the people <laughs> that I've talked to don't think of Saudi Arabia as a source for moderation. But I don't think most Americans do. Uh, of course, most Americans don't think about Saudi Arabia at all, True. <laughs> which yeah. is in itself problematic. Uh, I think people might recognize that the Saudis indeed are, um, are, are a troublesome ally, but an ally nonetheless, uh-huh. because uh, who else are we going to be allied with? But if you dig beneath the surface, you see that... Um, I mean, the uh, 15 of the 19 hijackers were from Saudi Arabia. Yes. Uh, the Saudis have been spending billions of dollars spreading their intolerant form of uh, Wahhabism around the world uh, that has become the ideological underpinnings of groups like al-Qaeda and ISIS and lone wolves who uh, attack people from uh, Paris to Belgium to uh, places throughout the Middle East. So it's important to uh, unravel the Saudi, uh, it, it, not only the government itself, what's behind this government, why are these um, kingdoms, why is this kingdom still in power mm. and its relationship with these radical clerics, and then why does the U.S. that's supposed to be fighting terrorism Uh, ally itself with the country that is most responsible for the spread of extremism. And, you know, that that seems to go against, again, conventional wisdom. My sense is most Americans have come to believe that Iran is the bad guy, that Iran supports global terrorism. Do they not? Is that that not accurate? Isn't Iran more of a backer of of, uh, global terrorism than Saudi Arabia? Well, you're right in that a lot of Americans think that because that is the line put out by um, a lot of our government officials. I go to these hearings in Congress all the time, and I'm constantly hearing Congress people talk about Iran as the you know the evil country right. that is spreading extremism, and it's just not the case. Um, Saudi Arabia is the evil country that is spreading extremism. I don't uh, defend the government of Iran, but it certainly is. Um, a more moderate government than the Saudi government. And the Saudis have been involved in 
literally uh, spreading Wahhabi extremism for decades now. I was in Pakistan. Uh, I've been there several times, but mm. years ago when I first realized all of these madrasas or schools that were set up by the Saudis that preached hatred for the West. Um, I've been in northern Africa and have seen how Saudi mosques have been set up with the imams being sent to Saudi Arabia to uh, learn the Saudi intolerant version of Islam and go back uh, and preach it in their own countries. Even Barack Obama himself commented on how the very tolerant version of Islam that was practiced in Indonesia, where he spent part of his childhood, um, has been corrupted by the Saudi influence. So you see it all over the world, and it certainly is way, way more the Saudis than Iran. And in fact, if there was a more... Uh, a, a natural ally of the U.S. in the Middle East, it would be Iran, not Saudi Arabia. Yeah, that's the impression that I have been getting lately. It certainly, again, goes against the uh, prevailing uh, winds these days. If you just tuned into Keeping Democracy Alive, Bert Cohen here. Very honored to have with us Medea Benjamin of Code Pink, whose new book is called uh, Kingdom of the Unjust Behind U.S.-Saudi Connections. What is the origin of the strange alliance between two countries that seemingly have very little in common? Is it all about oil? Well, a lot of it is about oil, especially in the beginning. Uh, And going back to the time of World War II, Franklin Delano Roosevelt meeting with the Saudi king, uh, realizing that the U.S. needed Saudi oil and saying, you sell us the oil and we will provide you with protection uh, that went on for decades, and in fact, it's gone on for 12 different U.S. administrations, both Democratic and Republican. But the times have changed. The U.S. produces a lot more of its own oil. It gets oil from different sources. Um, we only get about 12% of our oil from Saudi Arabia and could be getting it from other sources. In the meantime, what has happened uh, is that the Saudis have become the number one purchaser of U.S. weapons. In fact, our weapons industry has become dependent on the Saudis to the tune of just under, in the Obama administration, $110 billion worth of weapons. That's just a massive amount. Um, You had mentioned earlier in the show our relationship with Israel. Uh, In the case of Israel, We give them the money to buy U.S. weapons, but they get about $3 billion a year. So multiply that by eight years of the Obama administration, that's $24 billion worth of weapons. The Saudis are over five times that. So, yes, our weapons industry is now dependent on purchase by this very repressive regime using our weapons to um, commit war crimes in places like Yemen. And we, we've gotten the image here in America of ISIS, the brutal ISIS beheading people and doing horrible things like that. What do you know about life for the average person in Saudi Arabia? My sense is that there's the royal family, which has been very generous with its wealth. But if the oil wealth starts to go down, 
uh, I wonder, <laughs> you know, are, are the Saudi royal family, are they afraid of their own people? And uh, what's life like there as compared to, uh, you know, other uh, uh, countries and other uh, power structures like, like ISIS? I mean, they do beheadings there too, right? Well, yes. And if you are going to go up against the royal family, um, you'll find yourself uh, in prison or beheaded. There is no freedom of speech, no freedom of expression, no freedom of assembly, no political parties, no election for a president, no election for a, a Congress. Uh, things are run exclusively by the royal family and the clerics. Uh, if you want to blog about uh, questions you have um, about living under a theocratic monarchy, um, you might, like uh, one political prisoner, Rafe Badawi, find yourself sentenced to first to death, um, then lessened to 10 years in prison and a thousand lashes. Uh, if you are a lawyer and want to defend somebody like Rafe Badawi, uh, like his lawyer, Walid Abulkhed, uh, you might find yourself in prison for 15 years for defending a blogger. Uh, this is the kind of thing that happens when you uh, not, not, uh, join a um, underground armed militia. Mm -hmm. No, when you are speaking about nonviolent reform, so the Saudi government deals very harshly uh, with anybody who tries to change the system through nonviolent means. Yeah. Okay. And there are good buddies over there. What What's your sense? Why, over a period of decade after decade? across various presidential administrations, Republican and Democrat, the United States, why have we consistently supported a regime shown again and again to be one of the most powerful forces working against American interests? What, what do you make of that? Well, I explained the um, evolution just, from oil to weapon sales, uh, but there's a, other yeah. pieces of that. One is that... Our economies are now intertwined so that the huge profits from petrodollars have been recycled in large part into the U.S. economy. The Saudis owning everything from prime real estate in the U.S. to mm. uh, 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 companies on the U.S. stock market to hundreds of billions of dollars in U.S. treasuries um, to startup companies like Uber that just got an infusion of $3.5 billion from the Saudis. Yeah. Um, wow. So uh, there's those economic ties. And um, then there is the, uh, the uh, I would say, the familiarity that comes with 12 different administrations wow. uh, dealing with the Saudis. Um, hmm. And the... Enemy of my enemy is my friend. Right. The Saudis and the U.S. have been hostile towards Iran. Um, the Saudis have worked with the CIA over the years when mm -hmm. the CIA has wanted to invade, arm, or otherwise interfere in other countries. And um, U.S. administrations have not wanted to go to Congress for approval. What have they done? They've gone to the Saudis and asked the Saudis to uh, fund U.S. Uh, military adventures. Ah. It goes back to the days of Iran-Contra, wow. um, but it's also true in Afghanistan with the Saudis funding the Mujahideen 
it goes to the invasion of Iran, uh, I mean, of Iraq, uh, where the Saudis gave uh, $50 billion for the U.S. to invade Whoa. Iraq. So, yes, a lot of military um, adventures funded by the Saudis. I see. So our CIA, our military, doesn't need our money. They have Saudi money. Is, is that some of what you yes, say? so they can keep oh, these God. things away from the American public, <laughs> avoid the messy issues like... Uh, like the Constitution, oh, yeah. Congress that is supposed to uh, approve or disapprove of uh, U.S. going to war. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, that Constitution, it's so, oh, it just complicates things. Who needs it after all? Well, <laughs> it's amazing to me what you're talking about here. And I have to say, if you listeners don't uh, aren't familiar with Medea Benjamin, you talk about brave I mean, my goodness. And I've heard it said that dissent is the highest form of patriotism. Well, this this person, our guest today, is uh, extremely patriotic in that sense because the the bravery, the courage just knocks my socks off, can I tell you. And it's fi- all fighting for good good stuff. I'm very pleased to have a, have Medea Benjamin with us today. Now, what what is the Obama administration and the presumably Clinton administration proposing regarding the sale of more weapons to Saudi Arabia? Well, the Obama administration has been responsible for record sales to Saudi Arabia, and a lot of that when Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State and had to approve those sales. Um, so... Uh, there has been a very cozy relationship between this administration and the Saudis, despite some disagreements like the Iran nuclear deal. I just wrote a new piece that I'm putting out today on uh, another connection with Hillary Clinton. Um, There's been more publicity out these days around the uh, Clinton's uh, taking of money from right. uh, foreign governments, including the Saudis, oh, yeah. have given the Clintons between 10 and $25 million. Um, but the piece I'm writing today focuses on, on an aspect that hasn't really come out in the media, and that's the uh, connection to one of the lobby firms, the Podesta Group, that is a registered foreign agent for the Saudi government, and the head of that um, is the brother of Hillary Clinton's um, campaign chair, uh, Tony Podesta, uh-huh. is the head of the Podesta group. John Podesta is Hillary Clinton's campaign chair. Together, the brothers formed the Podesta group that now represents the Saudi government. Uh, so it is amazing to see the ties between uh, the uh, Hillary Clinton and the Saudis uh, she was very proud of herself in um, 2011 for having uh, helped to negotiate a, a $30 billion weapon sale to the Saudis, oh. uh, with her staff calling it a great Christmas present for them, oh because it happened on December 31st. Wow, that's, that's amazing. So they gave all this money to the Clinton Foundation, which we'll be actually discussing on the second half hour of uh, Keeping Democracy Alive, the Clinton Foundation. Uh, and it was one of her highest priorities to get them one of the biggest arm deals ever. It's amazing. How concerned are you, Medea Benjamin, about a Clinton presidency policy toward the Saudis and how that might affect not only U.S. relations in the area, but peace itself? 
Oh, I'm very worried about Hillary on all kinds of levels. I mean, she is working uh, with the Saudis on the um, it, around uh, Syria uh, in calling for a no-fly zone in Syria that would further entrench the U.S. in this terrible war in Syria. Um, she is uh, known as a hawk for her years as Secretary of State, um, and even pushing further than the Pentagon oftentimes in terms oh, yes. of U.S. military intervention. Yes. And uh, I certainly don't feel good about her or Donald Trump uh, when it comes to foreign policy. Yeah. And specifically around Saudi Arabia, it is scary to see uh, all these ties. And, uh, and ironic when you think of Hillary Clinton as the woman who will finally break the glass ceiling, the ultimate glass ceiling right. in terms of woman, women, right. and yet she has this very cozy relationship with the only country in the world where women are not allowed to drive, where women are treated like minors from the time they're born till the time they die uh, because they live under a guardianship system where a male yeah. has to uh, give them the approval for... Uh, who they're going to marry, where they're going to go to school, if they're going to get a passport and travel, um, all significant decisions in their lives. Uh, so, <laughs> yes, quite sad and ironic. Incredibly um, ironic. That she takes money from and uh, does the Big diplomatic cover for such a regime. Uh, absolutely amazing. The, the irony is kind of sickening, actually. There's the whole uh, war in Yemen. How, aside from... I mean, my my sense is that the Saudis uh, put it. They try to create the context that they're fighting a proxy war against the bad Iranians in Yemen. How do you think, aside from any moral issues, which are significant because a lot of Yemenis innocent people are dying there, how does that affect American interests in the Middle East by us supporting the Saudis in this war uh, that they're making on Yemen? Well, it puts the, the U.S. in the middle of what is seen as very much a, a, a sectarian conflict that we shouldn't be involved in, an internal conflict in another country that uh, we shouldn't be involved in. But also, the Saudi intervention in Yemen's internal conflict has actually led to the rise of uh, groups like al-Qaeda and ISIS inside of Yemen because um, the, the violence yeah. and the chaos creates the breeding grounds for even more extremist groups. And so that will come back to haunt us as well. Well, if you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're all involved in that, I hope. And our guest today is uh, certainly an outstanding member of uh, Taking That On, Keeping Democracy Alive, Medea Benjamin. We're talking about her new book. She's on a book tour across the country. The book is Kingdom of the Unjust, Behind the U.S.-Saudi Connections. Um, why do you say the time is right now for a revaluation of our close ties to the Saudi re regime? Don't we need stable allies in the region, and they are one? Why, why in particular, is, is now a good time for a reevaluation of uh, our relations with the Saudis? Well, it's a good time for several reasons. One is because we have created some distance by signing the nuclear deal with Iran, uh, and that gives us a chance to improve our relationships with Iran uh, and have a more balanced 
than relationship between those two countries. Um, the other is because we don't rely on the Saudis so much for the oil anymore. Right. Um, another is that the Saudis themselves, because of the low price of oil, have been having their own economic crisis, uh, and this is uh, a good time for uh, the people inside Saudi Arabia who are trying to push for change to actually have uh, more of a chance to do that, uh-huh. since the Saudi government can't buy off the goodwill of the Saudi people anymore by uh-huh. continuing to um, give away uh, subsidies um, and other goodies to its right. population because it just doesn't have the money. Hmm. Um, and I would say uh, my particular goal with this book and a 200-city speaking tour that I'm Whoa. just embarking on Jeez. is to educate people about why the U.S.-Saudi relationship is so dangerous and uh, why we have to stand up. And one thing that is happening right now is that the Obama administration has just authorized a new round of weapons sales to Saudi Arabia at a time when the Saudis are uh, committing all kinds of crimes in Yemen, including hitting residential neighborhoods, schools, uh, Doctors Without Borders Hospital, factories. And this is causing, for the first time, some of our Congress people to actually stand up and say, Uh maybe enough is enough. And yesterday, uh, 63 of them sent a letter to the administration saying, uh, we have 30 days as mandated by a law to stop this weapon sale. And uh, we think that Congress should actually stand up and do that. So we're trying to get people to call their Congress people, to call their senators and say, stop the weapon sales to Saudi Arabia. And we're excited that there's um, movement on this at the moment. And people like uh, Senator Chris Murphy from uh-huh. Connecticut uh-huh. and Senator Rand Paul from Kentucky, uh-huh. uh, who are leading the charge in the Senate, and then quite a number of people, both Republicans and Democrats, leading the charge in the House. Wow, that's that's good to hear. It's nice to have good news every now and then. I And I wanted to mention, this really grabbed me, and your acknowledgments at the end of the book, you write, I give deep gratitude to my Saudi friends who helped me gain some understanding of their complicated country. Unfortunately, many of them cannot be publicly acknowledged for their own safety. That really says a lot. So is there a particular number uh, on the uh, on the uh, legislation? Or, or should people just call their members of Congress and senators say, please, well, what should they say? Yes, they should call their members of Congress and Senate to say, no weapon sales to Saudi Arabia. And their uh, congressperson will know what that means because uh-huh. uh, right now um, we are waiting for legislation. There are just resolutions, and um, uh-huh. the legislation will be coming soon. I see. So, yes, just call and say, no weapon sales to Saudi Arabia. Very simple message. One more quick question. I know over history there have been quite a few rather corrupt, repressive regimes that would not be in power without the U.S., uh, South Vietnam, etc., etc., etc. Would they be in power? Would the Saudi royal family 
are they that dependent on the U.S. or, or uh, you know, could they survive without us helping them out? Well, it's a good question. I think uh, long ago, if you go back into the uh, 1940s and 50s, they would not have survived without the U.S. Um, today, they have a lot of firepower, thanks to us. Um, they have uh, a lot of yeah. quote, friends around the world, thanks to the money that they've uh, put out. Uh, for example, just in Egypt, the repressive coup regime of General Sisi um, is a good ally of the Saudis because the Saudis have given them billions of dollars. Uh, so now um, they have uh, they have even bought themselves a seat on the UN Human Rights Council. I mean, think just Whoa. ironic that is. Um, so today it's a lot more complicated yeah. and a lot harder to get them out of power. And as I say in the book, um, from the Saudis I've talked to, they don't want to see a violent overthrow of this uh, repressive government because they're afraid of what would sure. come after that. Look yeah. just at uh, Iraq or, or Syria or Libya. Right. Uh, and so they want to see reforms happening, and that's who we have to be supporting, the human rights activists, the women trying to overthrow the guardianship system, uh-huh. uh, the lawyers. Um, there's plenty of wonderful Saudis that really deserve our support. Um, not the Saudi regime. Right. Thank you so much for being with us, Medea Benjamin. Uh, Code Pink is one website uh, people can go to. The book is called, once again, Kingdom of the Unjust, Behind the U.S.-Saudi Connections. Thanks so much for being with us, Medea Benjamin. Thanks so much for having me.